Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So we're still continuing on in this series called Mission Redemption, uh, where essentially we're taking a very long block of time to follow the narrative of Jesus as he heads to the cross, right? So uh, the goal is that by Easter we are at the crucifixion, and so we're in direction toward that. And so this morning, we're at the portion of Scripture in the story of Jesus' uh, betrayal and, and everything else where we're at what's called the unlawful trial, right? We're calling this the unlawful trial, uh, that Jesus is going to stand before Pontius Pilate, before Herod, and before and a, a large audience of his own people for his trial, and he will, it, it will be an unlawful decision that will be made. But I want to let you guys know, before we get there, a couple of things. Uh, number one, I don't know if all of you know this, uh, but we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four gospel accounts uh, are, are to some degree synonymous. In other words, they parallel fairly well. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic gospels. And the reason we call them that is because... Man, you read Matthew, and then you read Mark, and you're like, why do I feel like I'm reading the same thing but from someone else's perspective, right? I mean, they're almost identical with just some few shifts here and there because it's different authors with different personalities with different angles of Jesus Christ. But then John, John is just bougie in what he writes, right? Like, John writes these high, majestic language, you know, it's, and he's very, John is very, very deep into the heart of Jesus. It still has synonymous degrees to it, but nowhere near like the first three. Now I tell you that because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read a very, very large chunk of scripture that is going to be going back and forth between John and Luke, okay? And the reason is because Luke is going to add in a couple of dynamics that John doesn't, and I want to get the full picture of what we're looking at. And so I would love to say turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18 and 19, but there will also be some Luke 23 sprinkled in there. So you can feel free and do that, but we will have the, the words on the screen as well. And so you can read along with me on that. Uh, but before we get there, I would like to really, as worship has prepared us, uh, I would also like to read a quote from Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote the message, if you don't know, who is apparently a very deep theologian, and I had no idea. Uh, but he writes this concerning God's word, concerning the scriptures. He says, God speaks, declaring his creation and his salvation so that we might believe. That is, trustingly participate in his creation of us and his salvation of us. The intent of revelation is not to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. So I want you to understand this morning that I'm not trying to stand up here and give you more information about God so you can walk out of the room and pass some test in the end. I'm here to tell you that God has intentionally and intimately involved himself with his creation. And through his word, through his revealed word, his revealed will, and through Jesus Christ, his son, he calls us to be involved with what he's doing. And so this message is not information for you. This message is divine revelation from the Word of God, not me, 
that is calling you to come and partake with the fountain of living waters. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll move into this. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, and we thank you for your word. Father, that you are not some far-off mystical being that we have to enter into from some esoteric practices, but you're the God of all creation, and there is not a single thing that exists that exists outside of you or outside of your will. And all of it, in some degree, will fulfill your purposes. So I am thankful also, Lord, that you are in the business of saving sinners, which is all of us. And that you've called a low-life scum like myself to stand up here and proclaim your revelation as you work in the hearts of the hearers. And so I pray you reveal yourself to us in this room this morning, Lord, whether we already know you or whether we have never known you. For those who know, Father, I pray we come to a realization that our job is to know the infinite and eternal God, which means into eternity we will constantly be growing in your knowledge. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray they taste of your goodness for the first time this morning. So bring glory to your name, Lord. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in. Uh, our big idea for this morning is very simple. Our big idea is this. Only the guilty can receive the pardon. Only the guilty can receive the pardon. Uh, and that's an important thing along with the quote that I just read because what we have to understand if we're going to be involved in what God is doing, we need to know what God's word says about us in our condition and what God is doing about our condition to redeem us from it. And so I think this big idea is going to level the playing field really well for anyone in this room who feels like maybe they don't need Jesus Christ as a savior, but that God should just love them because they think they're amazing. Uh, God did create you, you were, you were uh, fearfully and wonderfully made, and all those things are beautiful, but you also have a sickness and a condition within you that we call sin that is detestable before the eyes of God. And so praise God that he is loving and merciful, and that he in his graciousness redeems us. And so if you remember correctly from last week, uh, G uh, Jesse, almost called him Jesus, he's not. Uh, Jesse, <laughs> Jesse brought us a message last week, uh, and his big idea, which I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of the evidence, uh, the evidence demands a verdict, right? And so when you look at who Jesus is, and he follows the account of Jesus having been betrayed uh, and having been arrested by Roman soldiers, and he shows all this evidence that even in those moments, Jesus is showing that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all. And he says the evidence alone demands that we have a verdict. We have to do something with who Jesus is. And that's non-optional. And so we've gone through Jesus' arrest, his abandonment by his disciples, and him having come before the high priest Caiaphas. And now where we end up, uh, he's coming out. They've, they've brought him before Caiaphas, and now they're fixing to, bring, as I mentioned earlier, bring him before Pontius Pilate, before Herod, uh, and before the people unto his own demise. And so let me give you uh, three things, okay? Because I'm, listen, I'm not exaggerating what I say. This. I'm fixing to read a very large chunk of narrative. 
okay? And that can be overwhelming, especially for me who's having to read it. But uh, I want to give you three things to be looking for because what I'm going to read is a dialogue between Jesus and Pontius and Herod and the people. And so I'm going to give you all three things to be identifying as I'm reading through it. We will jump into it. I will let you all know. For the most part, I am giving an overview to this whole scene because there are two verses that I want to hone in on big time. But we need to see the whole picture before we can hone in on those two verses. So three things we're going to look at. Number one, Jesus as he's before Herod. So as Jesus is standing before Herod, what is that situation like? Secondly, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. What is that situation like? What is that dialogue? And then lastly, Jesus standing before his own people. And I want to let you know that we will all find our place in this story. So the passage is going to begin in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. I'll read through 1915 with some Luke sprinkled in. This is what John says. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended early in the early morning hours. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers did not go inside because it would defile them. And they wouldn't want, they wouldn't want to, they would, they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate the governor went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he's the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I'm saying is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them he's not guilty of any crime. But he's causing riots and he's teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, he's a Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, 
the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood out there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Now, as he returns back to Pilate, Pilate addresses the audience and he says this. He says, you have a custom of asking me to release a prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove their crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here's the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. So the three things we want to identify, Jesus before Herod, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before his own people. And so I want, to, I want to highlight these few things and then hone us in on a particular point. Number one, Jesus before Herod. Now it's interesting, Herod had heard of Jesus and Herod was incredibly excited to see Jesus. But what's odd about the situation Herod was not excited to see Jesus because he was excited about Jesus' teaching. Herod wanted to see a miracle. Herod was only interested in a miracle. And that's even what John writes, that that's what Herod wanted to see. And so when Jesus shows up, beaten, torn up, the great Jesus of Nazareth stands before Herod. And Herod says, is this it? Won't do a miracle. So Herod asks him question after question. Jesus, fulfilling prophecy, silent like a lamb before its, its, its shearers. Jesus stands silently before Herod, not saying a word. Could he have? Absolutely. Honestly, Jesus, as equality with God, could have easily spoken and Herod would have ceased to exist. 
But Jesus ceases to speak and stands before his accuser. And what's most interesting to me about this, Herod mocks him and moves him away. Why? Because Herod was not entertained. Think about the audacity to be a man standing before the king of all creation and treat him like he's a muse. Treat him like his job is to bring you entertainment, to meet all your little worship wants and all your little miraculous things and to portray for you the perfect movie. Like Jesus is meant to be in a monkey dance just so we can all enjoy the show. Imagine the audacity of Herod. And so what they do is they mock him and they dismiss him. What a waste of my time. And so they send him back before Pilate, and what does Pilate do? The audacity of Pilate really interests me. Pilate is like, don't you understand that I have the power to release you right now? Pilate asks him, que Pilate asks him questions, rhetorical at times, what is truth, mocks the idea that Jesus stands even though. If you don't know, Pilate's a Roman, right? Romans believe at the time in polytheism. Uh, it sounds crazy to believe in hundreds and thousands of gods, but in reality, we live in a pluralistic culture where we believe everything's a god too. And so it's really not that different. The only difference is we don't attribute to money and sex and all these things some god up in heaven. We just worship the thing itself. It's very similar. And so in the same way, listen to this, in the same way like Pilate, we find ourselves, Jesus comes along preaching and teaching truth, and we go, whoa, what is truth? We're in the 21st century. Let's make a more modern version of Jesus. We don't need a Jesus of the first century. That's old school teaching. Man, it's interesting where we fit into both of these stories. Because just like Herod, what do we do if the worship isn't entertaining enough? Dismissed. What if the preacher doesn't tell really funny, good stories? Get him out of here. So funny how we think that the church is existing just to meet our entertainment needs. And anything that doesn't, we mock and deride as though it has no power and influence, and that they're the ones completely missing the mark. And in the same way, how are we so much like Pilate? that we're all good with the Jesus as long as he doesn't interfere with the sin that we so love. As long as he doesn't call us to lay down something about our lives that we cherish more than we cherish him who's worthy of all. How well do we find ourselves to fit in with Herod and with Pilate? So please don't think that this is a 2,000-year-old story with no application. We are both of these people. And we find ourselves inside the story with the others as well. Keep in mind that as Jesus stands before the people, or not Jesus, Pilate stands before the people, what does he keep telling them? I don't find this man guilty. I don't find this man guilty. I don't find this man guilty. But what do the people keep saying? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now Pilate... This is an interesting concept. Pilate, you would look at and you'd go, well, he's got good intentions, right? 
And I think on the outset, it does appear to be so. Pilate's standing up and saying, well, he's not guilty. But in the long run, Pilate abandons his own convictions. He abandons the truth about Jesus, and he sends him off to be crucified simply because if he doesn't, his reputation would be scarred. Pilate's only intention is self-preservation. Appears good on the outset, but in reality, he's a coward. How often do we find ourselves in that same situation? How often in everyday life do we find ourselves denying the truth about Jesus simply so we can seem more relevant to those who we're around? How often would we rather be damned to hell than laughed at by men? So Pilate thinks he's washed his hands of it because as Jesus stands before the people, they spread lies that Jesus is creating revolt, that Jesus is creating riots. They spread lies that Jesus is trying to turn the people against Rome and against Caesar. And so they do everything they can to have Pilate want to kill him. And they're so prideful and they're so arrogant. And do you know the primary reason? Because the perfect little flow of their life was interrupted by Jesus. They had a vision as to what life should look like for them. And it should look like prestigiousness. It should look like respect. After all, they were the moral keepers of the law and the teachers. They were brought up in, in good families. They were the cream of the crop. And now this lowly son of a carpenter that hasn't even been to school is going to come along and start teaching and leading everybody away from their influence? We've got to get rid of this guy. So the people start crying out, crucify him. You know what's interesting to me about that? Why crucifixion? Right? They said, well, he called himself the son of God. Now, if you don't know, that is, according to Hebrew law, that's what they call blasphemy. He's considering himself an equal with God. That's, that's blasphemy, according to Hebrew law. But the, the difficulty that I had with this is Hebrew law demands stoning to death for blasphemy. It doesn't command crucifixion. It doesn't command hanging him on a tree. You stone him to death, which would still be horrible. I couldn't imagine being stoned to death, but they want something far worse. They want him to be made a public spectacle, and not only that, there's something that goes far beyond that. You really, listen, it is important that we ask the question, why crucifixion? Why is that what they want of him? If the charge is blasphemy, he should be stoned to death, and they're not saying anything about stoning him. They want him hanged on a tree outside the city for all to see. But it's funny how we witness the sovereign hand of God through this entire thing. Oh, Pilate. Pilate thinks he has the power to free Jesus? Pilate has nothing that wasn't given to him. The people think they're the ones 
bringing about this execution on a cross, they think they're picking the worst death humanly possible. They don't know God's predetermined plan before the foundation of the world. In order to understand why crucifixion, we need to, we need to see a slight interruption in the story. And this is what I want to hone in on. You've got this beautiful, eloquent flow, right? Well, I didn't say beautiful, but a good narrative of Jesus on his way to the cross. It seems like the trial is just flowing and everything's going to go momentarily. He'll be there and it's all over with. But, but then what we see in John chapter 19, I'm sorry, John chapter 18, is suddenly this guy Barabbas comes on the scene. Like, what on earth is that? Like, the flow of story, flow of story, and then suddenly Pilate's like, oh, hey! Every year for the Passover, I release a prisoner as a sign of mercy. So let's bring out a rebel and let's have him released from prison, right? And so Pilate, hoping that they're going to pick Jesus to go free, they scream out, no, we don't want him. Release Barabbas from the prison instead and let him go free. And, and, and John writes that Barabbas is a revolutionary, now, in other synoptic gospels, he's not just a revolutionary, he's a murderer. He's a murderer. He's a zealot. He's a tyrant. He's an anarchist. And the most odd thing happens. If I could enter the story, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, it kind of shows it. Barabbas and Jesus, both standing before the people with Pontius Pilate, both in chains and shackles. The crowd cries out, free Barabbas. And what you see happen is a guilty man is unshackled and let go while an innocent man walks off to bear his cross. Why crucifixion? Because according to Hebrew law, and this is, this is so incredibly important. According to Hebrew law, Deuteronomy chapter 21, if any man is hanged on a tree, he's cursed by God. Why not stoning? Because stoning just shows that he blasphemed. But to have him crucified says something utterly different. It says that this man, this man's not just dying, he's dying under a curse. And when you think a curse, don't think witchcrafty stuff. A biblical curse is the wrath of God. A biblical curse is God's judgment on you. And so Jesus goes to a cross as a cursed man. And Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, speaking of Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Innocent. He humbled himself in obedience to God 
and died a criminal's death on a cross. How peculiar that in this narrative, the criminal goes free and the innocent man goes to his death. Why? Because God is showing us a little foreshadow of what was fixing to happen to Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, he says, but Christ has rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see how every one of us is a Herod in this room? Unamused by the realities of Jesus Christ. And it's so funny that that spreads in. Listen, I'm not even just talking about worship set and, and preachers, but in your everyday life, do you realize that we were created to be in utter awe and wonder of the person of God? And yet how often is it just mundane and boring? Do you walk out of your house every morning and see the grass in your yard or the trees? And are you enamored by the power of the word of God which created and is currently sustaining all things? Have you ever been raptured by the beauty of looking at the vastness of a night sky? It's so bizarre because the word of God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we've never done it in a second of our lives, but Jesus Christ did it with absolute perfection. Jesus couldn't look on a single thing in creation without being utterly ravished by the amazingness and the majesty of God. But we're Herod. We're unamused unless he does exactly what we want him to do. And we're Pilate. We have this audacity that we think we have the right to boss God around like we can tell him what he needs to be doing in our lives. And even worse than that, on top of that, we change what we believe about him to fit those around us. And we cower out and we back down from our own convictions because we consider the approval of others to be Lord more than him. And so we are the audience as the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ glares in our face of our fallenness, we cry out, crucify him, get him away from me. But God in his love sees all of us, a bunch of criminals, a bunch of Barabbases, shackled in chains, condemned for death. And he sends his own son to go to the criminal's cross that we deserve, to bear the wrath of God, the curses of the breaking of the law that we deserve. For our abandonment of him, God remained faithful in his love, and he sent Jesus Christ to suffer the penalty for what we deserve. And Barabbas is a foreshadow of that. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So let me, let, let's, let's bring you into this scenario really quickly. I need you to see yourself as Barabbas. I need you to see yourself knowingly guilty 
as your chains and your shackles are taken off and you watch Jesus Christ go off to the cross that you deserve. Because God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. What's the word of God declare about our condition? That we're rebels. That we've committed cosmic treason by abandoning our God. But what did he do about it? He sent Jesus Christ to be abandoned so we didn't have to. And so let me bring this home. Number one, for our application, you have to find yourself in this story. You have to. As we've talked about it, where do you fit in? And I don't want you to just think about it right now. Listen, I want you to, I want you to identify it. And then I want you to know that moving forward for the rest of your life, this will be a struggle for you, right? This isn't one of those things where you identify it now and magically it goes away. I don't know if you know much about the sin condition, but it's not going away. Until, Jesus, until your death or the return of Christ, we remain stuck here, battling daily with this internal struggle with sin until the day where he liberates us. But know this, brothers and sisters, He has freed you completely from the penalty of sin, past, present, and future, if you were believing him. Completely freed you. And one day he will free you from the presence of it altogether. But where do you fit into this story? Is Jesus not entertaining enough for you? If so, my challenge to you would be find something very, very simple. And don't jump from thing to thing to thing. Find one thing very simple. And find how majestic the Lord is in his creation and sustaining of that one thing. I'll tell you right now, some of you listen. I already know, you're going mountains, stars, and those are all beautiful. Listen, they really are. Uh, my favorite personally is probably the word, uh, scriptures. He reveals himself very clearly in that. But also this, mountains and stars are amazing. They show you how vast God is, how powerful. If you want to go to Niagara Falls, look at the power of water is like 10 billion gallons per second pour over. Like that's insane to me. Uh, but more than that, there is only one thing in all of creation that bears the stamp of God, and it's you. God created mankind in his image and likeness. You are what they call the imago Dei, the image bearer. You want to learn so much about God? Look at the attributes and necessities of being a human being. Be patient with one another's shortcomings. Be merciful to our sins. But look at the complexity of human consciousness and everything that we are. It would be... I don't want to say like staring God in the face, but it's the closest thing you get without the word of God itself. Does he not entertain you? Or do the praises of people override the person of Christ? If that's the case, my encouragement for you is two things. Be praying constantly. 
that you would consider Christ's praise to be far more important than the praise and approval of anybody else. But secondly, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there. I know this is hard. Some of you approval addicts, man, this is a difficult thing. Just go ahead and start breaking the tendency now. Right? I'm not saying be mean and throw stuff in people's faces. But go ahead and take some of those things that you go, okay, I, I feel like people might not approve and just do it. If it's not against scripture, so that you can understand that if someone doesn't approve of you, your life still goes on, Christ is still on his throne. And obedience to him is far greater than pleasing anyone around you. Second point, going off of what Jesse taught last week, you must respond to the truth of Christ. You must. And that looks like two things. Let me say this really quickly. Uh, he is your Lord. He is. Now listen, maybe you're not a believer in the room. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Believe him, don't believe him, he is Lord of all. You don't get an option. There is, you're, you're not going to veto anything about him. You're not going to overturn him. There is no impeachment. He is seated on the throne. Psalm 2 says the nations rage against him. Futile. It is hopeless. He is king of all. My highest recommendation to you, bow the knee. Bow the knee. Because if not, you are waging war against the omnipotent. You will not win that. You will not. He is Lord. If you do know him, maybe you're going, yes, he is Lord. And I'm really trying to figure out how to submit to him. And I'm really trying to figure out how to walk with him. I'm going to say this lovingly but simply. It is not a mystery. Some of you are so busy looking for signs and feelings on what to do. I can tell you very clearly, if you want to know how to follow Jesus... Read his word. I could even narrow it down to you. Just read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It is some of the clearest instruction on what it means to be a Christian. You're looking for the will of God for your life? It is written. It's not in signs and symbols. It's in the scriptures. And if it's not in the scriptures, then it's not your business. Deuteronomy chapter 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. In other words, you handle the revealed things, you obey those, and let him take care of the rest. That's what he does. He's the sovereign, not you. Second thing that looks like, he's your savior. Now let's go back to our imagery with Barabbas. I'm running over, I apologize. Imagine being Barabbas for a minute. Do you know how foolish some of us are? Trying to put those chains back on and trying to run to the death that Jesus volunteered to die for us? He is your savior. You are not. You know what that means? Stop beating yourself up. Stop punishing yourself for your sin for your Listen, it's not news. God's not in heaven going, I can't believe that. 
He knew the whole time. That's why Christ went to the cross. Christ didn't go to the cross for people who are really trying. Christ went to the cross for people who were shackled in prison like Barabbas. He went to the cross for criminals, for the ungodly. Stop trying to bear the punishment yourself. Stop beating yourself up. Stop heaping guilt and shame on yourself. Give it to Jesus. Does he deserve it? No. But he loves you, and he came voluntarily to take it for you. Give it to him, and be free. Only the guilty can receive the pardon. Because you don't need it if you have no guilt. But that's every one of us. Christ came to set us free. So let's walk it. Let's pray. Father, I find myself so blown away so often that from Genesis to Revelation, you have shown us over and over again, foreshadow after foreshadow, of what you would do to redeem us from our sin. And with Barabbas, it was like a final show that you were going to display publicly Jesus Christ as the appeasement for your wrath so that guilty sinners could go free. So Lord, I'm going to ask one thing that by your grace and by your power, that truth would become living in our hearts so that we would glorify you. Amen. You guys have a great week.